according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take a moment to uh, check the noise uh, capacity of your telephone. All right, mine is no longer in danger of making noise, but it wants to do an update. Oh, well. All right, good morning. Good to see you all here today. Appreciate your coming out. We uh, are going to get our second look and probably our final look. I don't think it's going to take that long at uh, this barren fig tree. Describe some principles of imminency, things that I think are very uh, vital and uh, maybe expand upon it a, a bit because these passages approach imminency on the basis of wrath, uh, the wrath that is soon to come in terms of Second Advent, uh, what we would relate today in terms of tribulation, things of that nature. And perhaps we lose sight of that because we are um, delivered from the wrath to come. We... Uh, uh, as it's described in First Thessalonians, we've turned to God from idols uh, to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son to be revealed, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And, and we're no longer under that uh, terrifying expectation of judgment and, uh, and so forth. And yet we need to stop and realize that if the rapture comes today, if it sounds this very moment, then we're gone. We're out of here. Hooray for us. But what about those that are still here? And what is the wrath about to be unveiled upon them? And uh, do we have a heart to seek and to save the lost? Or are we just so happy for ourselves? You know, great for us, too bad for them. And, uh, and you know, they should have accepted the gospel and they had the chance. And uh, kind of a thing. No, we want to understand what was Christ's attitude? What's God the Father's attitude? And why is it that here we have warnings of judgment like repent or perish, repent or perish given twice? And then, uh, and the idea of cut this tree down. These are, these are urgent warnings. Cut this tree down. And they're applications of wrath. And yet, in Second Peter, we have the uh, exhortation for patience. And uh, so we're going to spend some time and talk about that a little bit. I expect we will have that time here today. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning as creatures of time bound by time. And day by day we, we wake up and we find ourselves the recipients of another day of grace, another grace uh, wake up that gives us one more opportunity to study to show ourselves approved before your face. So Father, we uh, ask your hand a blessing upon our study as we uh, set aside distractions, as we uh, look to you, look to your word for our guidance and our direction, for our instruction. Father, we thank you uh, for your grace eternal plan that uh, never gets caught off guard, never gets caught by surprise, never wakes up on any particular day and discovers things that they weren't that your plan was not anticipating. Father, your plan anticipates everything. And uh, not only everything that will take place, 
but everything that could possibly take place in terms of your choices and your plan. Just overwhelming for us to stop and consider. Father, we, uh, we do want to be uh, also prayerful over uh, our brothers and sisters there in Connecticut. Uh, for Pastor Jay Chapel's family, we thank you for his faithfulness in ministry. We thank you for the testimony of grace that will go forth. Uh, there will be family gatherings throughout the week and the memorial service on Saturday, Father. If we can't be there in, pres- in person, we can certainly be there in spirit and lift them up in prayer and, and express our love and our, and our appreciation for how, how faithful you are. So, Father, we offer these matters up in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Alrighty. If you did not see the email, then uh, that maybe was your first notice. But uh, Pastor Jay Chapel in uh, North Stonington Bible Church up in uh, Connecticut is no longer in Connecticut because the Lord took him home Sunday afternoon. And after uh, a couple of rounds with cancer, he had beat it a few years ago and went into full remission and then uh, came back about six months ago. And with the uh, the placement and the intensity and so forth, when it came back, the doctor said this is... This is what's going to be the departure ticket. So they uh, they were right as far as their doctorly wisdom goes. And uh, the family had the opportunity to uh, to uh, prepare and celebrate and rejoice together and, and all that. And actually, uh, his son Larry Chapel has been pastor now for almost two years anyway. That, that Jay went ahead and retired and, and uh, Larry, his son, took over the church. It's been almost two years now that Larry's been in the senior pastor position there. And uh, anyway, so we lift that up and uh, appreciate how uh, how grace is multiplied. All right. Well, Luke chapter 13, we have a parable in verses six through nine. He began telling this parable and it wasn't just on a whim or accidental that he was telling them this parable. This parable is the illustration for the message that preceded it. And that was the occasion where. They reported to him about the Galileans uh, that Pilate had put to death, and uh, he rebuked them a couple of different times, exposing their mental attitudes, exposing their pride, that uh, they pretty much had concluded that the Galileans had it coming to them. You know, they were wicked, they were evil, they were Galileans, and so, yeah, it's uh, you know too bad for them, but uh, you know that's what you get when you're involved in sin. You know, when you're in Galilee and when you're not. Uh, smart enough or uh, humble enough or holy enough to come live in Jerusalem and become a part of the Pharisaic system or the Sadducee system and the different things there. Anyway, uh, Jesus just obliterated them a couple of different times to say, you know what, they weren't worse sinners than you guys and uh, neither were the uh, folks that died when the tower fell. Uh, that's the illustration of verse 8 in verse 4 where uh, the Tower of Siloam collapsed and uh, 18 men uh, were killed and they were Judeans, you know, they would have been, you know, so, so much for their pride about, uh, you know, being of the right um, geographical location there. Anyway, the uh, admonition comes twice. You will all likewise perish unless you repent. Verse three and verse five, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And the language there, I hope we take notice of, I didn't stress it, but it is conditional language. It is conditional language. We use it all the time. Greek uses it. Hebrew uses it. English uses it. Conditional. These are the languages of if or if not or unless or only if. And we understand that. The language of unless means this is what's going to happen only if these other conditions are not met. And so when you understand, well, what's it going to be? Are they going to repent or are they going to perish? Now, from the standpoint of 
you and I, we don't know. <laughs> As I said, we're creatures of time and we're looking ahead and maybe they will, maybe they won't. If they don't, here's the consequence. But what if they do? See, well, then the perishing does not take place. You understand that's the language of condition, the language of consequence. See, and uh, the rejoicing, you know, the, the celebration we can partake in is the fact, of course, that our father has a plan that encompasses every single what if in the universe, every contingency, every volitional decision and, and so forth. And he, under, he understands, of course, he knows what they're going to be, but he sets the uh, parameters for each one. And human volition is accountable for every choice you ever make. You are accountable for every choice you ever make. I'm accountable for every choice I ever make. These folks here are accountable. And if they choose wrong, they're going to perish. That's what Christ is telling them here. So, and we taught this some time back. I hope you, uh, you got the principle and you wrote it down. You've been chewing on it. Uh, we are no less accountable by virtue of the fact that God knows what our choice is going to be. All right? God knows what our choice is going to be. His foreknowledge knows it. But that doesn't change our accountability. And that, uh, that becomes really a fundamental principle of, of Scripture. We'll have more to say on that because the parable he gets into also addresses the language of conditions or the language of uh, potential in uh, the begging request that the man undertakes there in verse 8. In any event, repent or perish. It's an or else message. Which gets us into the parable. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? Okay? It is in the way. It's not doing anything. It's useless. It's not producing. Get rid of it. Okay? And you understand that that is also a fundamental principle of Scripture for our application. Uh, vines that do not bear fruit are not accomplishing the purpose for which they're designed. We are designed to abide in the vine. We're designed to bear fruit. If we don't bear fruit, we come under God's hand of discipline. He designs us to bear fruit. and He will lift us up and He will prune us. He will discipline us. See, ultimately, when we study John 15, we're going to see that I am the vine, you are the branches doctrine that uh, becomes very important. Now, in our outline, we've already, there's only four points of study. We've given three of them already last week. That's why I firmly believe we'll be able to wrap it up this week, even if I get sidetracked into illustrating applications of imminency. The admonition to repent or perish is illustrated with this parable. And just as the... Uh, Men that Jesus was speaking to are on the verge of perishing without eternal life. Uh, this tree is on the verge of being cut down. Actually, the order has already been given. So the decision has been made. The instructions are placed out there for the man to make uh, obedience to the commands that are given. So the admonition is illustrated. We don't want to separate the message of 1 through 5 from the parable of 6 through 9. Fig trees are going to be on the Lord's mind quite a bit between now and the cross. The Greek is suke, S-U-K-E, number 4808. If you combine suke and moira, you get uh, suke moira, you get sycamore. And uh, the sycamore tree, like, you know, uh, little guy Zacchaeus went climbing up, uh, is related to the fig tree. 
the suke, at least uh, as far as the Greeks were concerned. They named them very similar fashion. We will be, uh, fig trees will be used as illustrations at later points of Jesus' ministry as the crucifixion draws near. And two passages in Matthew, one in chapter 21, one in chapter 24, paralleled by two uses in Mark, Mark 11, Mark 13. And uh, one of those is also paralleled in Luke, Luke chapter 21. And so we looked at those last week. We won't go back to them today, but just know that they are coming up and uh, a lot of doctrine associated with those fig trees. Point three, then, what are the details of the parable? The parable features a conversation between a man and a gardener. Just a man and a gardener is all it is. But it tells the story of the warning in verses 1 through 5. When Jesus warns these men to repent or perish, they may not understand how close they are. See, and I think in a lot of biblical examples of the sin unto death or the potential sin unto death, how close were uh, these people really to the Father's hand of discipline in removing them from planet Earth? All right. Only on rare occasions does the person actually have his eyes open to see. David had his eyes open to see that the angel of the Lord was standing over the threshing floor in Jerusalem with the sword drawn, ready to strike. That's how close judgment was when the Lord opened David's eyes to that. I think a couple of other examples as well. When Nathan was rebuking David for the adultery with Bathsheba, and the very first words out of his mouth were, I have sinned. Say, it's a good thing those were the very first words out of his mouth, aren't you? Don't you think? Wonder what might have, how close was he at that point, see? In any event, um, we don't know. We don't know. Fortunately, God does. But I think sometimes, though, uh, believers in their reversionism, in their carnality, in their prolonged darkness, uh, they think lightly of the riches of God's grace and consider that they've got more leeway or they got more time or that you know uh, and they may not they may not they may be counting on time of mercy that they do not have so the parable helps to explain this the parable features a conversation between a man and a gardener so a man had a fig tree that is uh, indicating his possession his ownership his sovereignty so he had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard again it doesn't say he did the planting, and, and I don't believe he did. I believe that he's of uh, sufficient wealth and means and so forth, that he does not get his hands dirty in this kind of uh, manual labor. He has staff to do that kind of thing. But he still maintains ownership. He still has full expectations of reaping the crop, reaping the benefit. He's waiting to eat these figs, right? Particularly the new figs, uh, the fig uh, the tree tends to have two crops, an early crop, a later crop, and the new figs of that very first early crop were uh, considered a delicacy, were considered the tastiest, were considered the choice, the choice figs. And so he's been waiting. Anyway, we have a conversation between a man and a gardener. The man had been waiting three years for his fig tree to produce figs. And you say, well, seems like a long time, <laughs> right? How long does this take? Well, for figs, from what I read, I'm not a fig expert, okay? But what I read is that fig trees do not produce figs until their third year. All right? I got that from two different sources. I don't know if that's true of every fig tree on the planet today or if that was true only of this type of fig tree in the ancient world. Uh, if those of you that may perhaps want to 
explore deeper studies of fig trees, then uh, go ahead. You can study the Suke ology and become a psychologist in uh, Sukeology, right? Of course, if you change the S to a PS, then you'd be a Psukeologist. And uh, maybe you don't want to be a psychologist, but you wouldn't mind being a psychologist. All right, sorry. Just jumped out at me. But three years is sufficient time. That's important to note. Three years was sufficient time for fig production, at least according to this kind of fig tree in uh, this part of the world. All right. And that is, uh, as I said, agreed upon by every source I looked at. It is sufficient. Later on, we're going to see um, Christ actually is going to wait, wither a tree when he expects to find fruit and there is no fruit on it. And uh, that's a passage that comes under a lot of scrutiny and study because of some debate as to whether it should have had fruit on it at that time of year. For example, as I mentioned, these trees were very well predictable for their uh, their two crops of uh, figs that they would produce. So we'll we'll detail that when we get to that point. Three years was sufficient, and he's tired of waiting. The gardener then begs for just one more year. The gardener begs for one more year. A fourth year, see, an extra year. Um, you know, a year that uh, he's not doesn't deserve, not entitled to. The gardener cannot in any way insist upon it or demand it. It's not his tree, not his vineyard. Not really his business. He, uh, you know, just as the tree belongs to this man, the vineyard belongs to this man, the, in all likelihood, the gardener belongs to this man, either on an employment status or a slavery basis. Um, the gardener does not have the sovereignty. The gardener is making a request. And he's making a request as one that has no right to expect the request to be answered. See? Which... Uh, I enjoy because to me this forms a wonderful picture of prayer, <laughs> forms a wonderful picture of you and I going to our Heavenly Father and anything we ask for, everything we ask for, we have no business asking for any of it. Not in our own name, not in our own authority, our own merit and so forth. Now, when you ask in the name of Christ, freely, you know, you can ask and have confidence that you will receive. And I don't want to be misheard this morning or misunderstood. When you pray in the name of Christ, you have every expectation of being heard. You belong there. The Father will provide and so forth. But it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you're entitled to it. You and I are entitled to the lake of fire. And, uh, and that's all there is to it. So, I want to detail now the imminency here that's in view. The imminency of God's wrath. The imminency of God's wrath is such that gardeners... Not just this one guy in the parable, but each one of us. Gardeners ought to do their work with the utmost diligence. Gardeners ought to do their work with the utmost diligence. You say, well, I'm not a gardener. Yes, you are. Okay. Understand the parable. Understand what it represents. We'll bring you some New Testament application as well. And you'll find out that, yes, in fact, you are a gardener. Spiritually speaking. Which is a good thing, because your earthly gardening skills have no bearing on your spiritual gardening skills. Can I get an amen? Is that <laughs> right? I've never grown anything in my life. Nothing. Everything I've attempted died. 
If you don't believe me, just ask my mother after class. She'll testify. Even in kindergarten, you get that little Dixie cup and you fill it with soil. You put the seed in there and it's supposed to sprout and whatever. Mine never did. It died. All right. I didn't care. Mom was devastated. It's like I was going to flunk kindergarten or something. Well, fortunately, our spiritual gardening, our spiritual gardening, our spiritual farming, the work we do on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ as we edify, as we labor in God's field, um, fortunately, that is entirely His business. The Father works through us. The Holy Spirit empowers us. Jesus Christ leads us. And what a blessing that it's the Father who's at work in and through us. God, we plant, we water. God gives the growth. And uh, praise Him for that. Now, as I, I think I said a little bit last week, the three years here truly applies more to the fig tree than it applies to anything else. But there is a tendency on the part of commentators. They want to find a corollary to every nitty-gritty detail and every parable that's ever ever come down the pike. Okay, And that, by the way, violates the... Um, nature of parables parables aren't designed to have a corollary to every last aspect or detail or or jot and tittle a parable is designed to tell a story and make a point all right yeah and so every parable has one point to make and if you get the point of the parable then you got it and you don't have to go back and try to find well you know is this a shadow is this a is this uh an allegory, you know, what do we... But people do get wrapped up over the three-year deal, okay? That, oh, you came three years. It's got to be significant, right? And even beyond, of course, the, what we've already observed is that that's how long it takes a, a newly planted fig tree to give a crop, and not until its third year. Um, now, there are folks, though, that highlight the fact that this is uh, pretty well approximate to three years after the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That from uh, he's about six months from the cross. If you track his ministry as a three and a half year ministry, well, then what do you have? You got three years since the baptism at the River Jordan. Okay, and so they they read a lot into that. And uh, of course, that only holds true if our chronologies are correct. And it is a three and a half year ministry. Uh, It may well be a four and a half year ministry. And there are some studies that have it out to five year ministry as far as that goes. If we didn't have the Gospel of John, by the way, we wouldn't have proof, biblical proof, of anything longer than about a year and a half as it comes down to it. Because the Gospel of John is the one that gives us the various Passovers and feasts and uh, a couple of unnamed feasts that we debate back and forth whether they were Passovers or not. So anyway, there's a whole study to that. I'm going to show you, though, out of Luke 3, 9, that the three-year reference is not really all that critical as far as this being, you know, three years after the start of his ministry. So now, you know, God's had it. He's given them three years. They're not bearing fruit. So chop it down kind of a thing. Because the same message was given at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, before Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist was giving this message in Luke 3, 9. And this is where the Pharisees and these other snakes are coming out to participate in all the fun and games, entertainment and and so forth. And uh, John the Baptist just calls him a brood of vipers. Why are you coming to Bible class? You know, Bible class is for uh, born again believers in fellowship, uh, positive to doctrine. What are you guys doing here? So he calls him a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Telling them, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he says in verse nine, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So 
when the when the <coughs> parable landowner at the end of Jesus' ministry is saying, chop the tree down, it's been three years, uh, let's not read so much into that that we think that that somehow relates to the three years of Jesus' ministry because three years earlier, there's the axe that's already at the root of the tree. All right? It's already at the root of the tree. Uh, I mean, if you really want to approach this passage on a dispensational basis, you can bring in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and say, you know what, 68 and a half of these weeks are already done. We're almost finished with week 69. There's not much left, <laughs> okay, as, uh, as the, the prophetic calendar there that's given in Daniel's 70th week um, comes into focus. So, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, and you understand that's a metaphor, and yet uh, fruit bearing is the principle, and fire, of course, is judgment. Now, under this, what is this request all about? Requesting mercy is a who knows faith prayer. A who knows question mark faith prayer. This is when a believer positive to the plan of God, intimate with the mercy of God, prays a who knows kind of prayer. Now, does this man think that the landowner is going to be generous and merciful? He's going to change his mind? He already gave the order. Cut the tree down. Cut the tree down. See. So, is this request out of line? Is it wrong? When he says, cut it down. And the man says, can I have one more year? And then I'll cut it down. He's, he's asking a request. Even though he knows the mind of his master. Is he out of line? See, when we do other studies, we see, for example, Balaam was trying to curse Israel. And he told Balak. Balak offered him good money. And Balaam didn't know who these people were. He said, yeah, I can do that. Let me go inquire of the Lord. And he goes and he inquires of the Lord. The Lord says, no, you can't. It's not even possible for you to because the Lord has blessed them. Who can curse those whom the Lord has blessed? It's not even possible to curse these people. And Balaam goes back to Balak and says, uh, nope, can't do it. This is Israel, the nation of Yahweh, and no one can curse them. Yahweh has blessed them. And then, of course, Balak doesn't like taking no for an answer, and he doubles the pot, uh, increases the offer, and, the, and Balaam was the, you know, the for-profit prophet that said, yeah, I want, the, I want to make the money on this, right? And that's where he was out of line. Because he said, let me go back again and see what else the Lord might tell me. All right. Even though he knew clearly he'd already received his answer. All right. And that's where Balaam crossed the line. That's where. And, and so when you, when you do those studies in, in numbers on Balaam and so forth, or you do studies on prayer in general. And what does it mean to wrestle with the angel? What does it mean to not let go? What does it mean to pray without ceasing and to, and to not stop a prayer until you get your answer? See, we're, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to be persistent in our prayers. But when we get our answer, we need to accept our answer. All right? 
Because when God gives the answer and you act like, uh, uh, well, that's not it, right? That's not the answer I wanted, so let me keep praying about this. Then what have you just done? You just imitated Balaam. And uh, that's going to put you in a very narrow corridor, uh, in a place of discipline with God's wrath and maybe a talking donkey under you, but you're in that narrow corridor and God's discipline is going to come upon you because you have your answer. Why go back and ask again? All right. All of that then is to ask the question here in this context. And is he right or is he wrong? How is it when a statement is made, cut the tree down, and a question is then asked, is that out of line? Is that out of line? I'm going to tell you, no, it's not out of line. Not only by virtue of the illustration and Christ's use of it here, but also these other passages that we see. All right. The initial question is in itself not out of line. Now, if the answer comes where the Lord rebukes him and says, no, don't answer that. I told you, cut it down, cut it down. Then he's got to take that as the answer and go cut the tree down. But the first question, the first question in exploring the will of God is not out of line. And that's what we're going to see here. I call it a who knows faith prayer. Who knows? Okay. And we have examples of it in 2 Samuel 12, 22, Esther 4, 14, Joel 2, 13, and Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. So let's look at it. They're all Old Testament passages. So you see they're foundational. They would be in the backdrop behind the illustration we're looking at in Luke 11, but 2 Samuel 12, story we know very well. <clears throat> the David and Bathsheba nightmare is in chapter 11. Hmm. By the way, I don't want to. I'm not going to get into specifics, but I do ask for your prayers on a unnamed matter that uh, is not a part of this assembly, but is a part of outside uh, ministry, you might say. Um, folks that are uh, not a part of our ministry, not a part of Austin Bible Church, but they know I'm a pastor and have started asking me some questions and things and there's uh, adultery involved and there's just a terrible set of circumstances. I'm not going to say any more, but... <clears throat> I do ask for your prayers, though, because it is going to be an ugly, difficult thing to go through. Well, in chapter 11 here, kind of describes that, how ugly it is. And yet David thought that he was able to cover all his tracks. He was able to hide this, cover up that, uh, remove this uh, problem, remove that problem. And uh, all the things there. We taught this back in our Life of David series. In fact, it took multiple weeks to go through this chapter. At that time, well, he didn't get away with it, of course, you never get away with it. God sees everything. He knows everything. And so the Lord uses Nathan, the prophet, to come and uh, tell this story. And, uh, you know, this parable, there were two men. And, and anyway, it's, uh, it's a pretty gruesome story and it makes David mad. <laughs> and so David says, well, that guy needs to die. And uh, this is why I know God's got this sense of humor. He's so wise and amazing. Uh, yep, that guy does need to die. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, it says in Second Samuel 12:5. And uh, then Nathan says to David, well, that's you. 
You're the man, and by your own admission, you need to die. You're an adulterer. You're a murderer. In fact, you should be dead twice. Each of those crimes was worthy of stoning. So you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of it. See, he inherited that harem when he became king. Anyway, David had no sexual capacity for satisfaction in different things. His polygamy ruined that. And um, I gave all this to you. And if that had been too little, I would have added many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Now, it's interesting because this comes after the unconditional Davidic covenant. Remember, he made unconditional I will promises. His son will sit on the throne forever. And that's an unconditional promise. And so when you read through the consequences here, God can't scrap the Davidic covenant. He can't undo anything previously promised. And nothing in this divine discipline that's going to follow David for the rest of his days, none of the divine discipline here invalidates the unconditional promises that were made back in chapter 7. And so um, the, the passage of discipline ends in verse 12. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and all under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And as I said, a good thing, those were the first words out of his mouth. Good thing. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. I'm telling you, that, that phrase tells me that David was that close. Absolutely that close. However, because by this deed you've given occasion the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Now there's the statement. And this is coming from a prophet of the Lord, Nathan, you know, presumably he's speaking from the Lord. So it's the Lord through Nathan saying, this child's going to die. And that is just as direct as the landowner telling the gardener, cut down that tree. So the will of God is stated. The will of God is this child's going to die or cut down this tree. Okay, so you see the parable, see the, the, the parallelism then. All right, so. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. Now, the Lord said he was going to die. But didn't just kill him like that. Didn't just you know stop his breath or have him instantaneously dead. Struck him sick. And he actually lingers for days. Why did he do that? Said he was going to die. But why? Didn't say how long. Didn't say what method. Didn't say what means. And just said he was going to die. And then he strikes him sick. It's kind of like the landowner saying, chop down that tree, but doesn't do it himself, doesn't immediately chop it down with his own hand, his own axe. He orders it and then gives it to a worker, a steward. So, child becomes sick, and uh, David therefore inquired of God for the, for the child. Inquired of God. He asked a question. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And he's not going to stop until he gets his answer. See, this is David's moment, like Jacob, wrestling with the angel of the Lord. He's not letting go until the answer is given. 
All night on the ground, the elders of the household stood beside him in order to raise him from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. How long have you ever laid on the ground without eating? Right? Just laid there on the ground, not eating, not drinking, just praying. Seven days. Now, child didn't die on day one, didn't die on day two, didn't die on day three, didn't die on day four. Now, David knows he was told the child's going to die. But it didn't happen on day one, so David started praying. And it didn't happen on day two, so David kept praying. And it didn't happen on day three, so David kept praying. All right? It happened on day seven. David quit praying. He had his answer. So it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. They said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? You know, horrible thing to lose a child. And and especially when you know it's your fault you're losing a child. And, uh, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. Okay. Plus the fact that he's a prophet himself, probably, (laughs) you know. No, he didn't have to be a prophet to tell this. He he knows who his servants are, and he has a pretty good read on them. So he asked, is the child dead? He said, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, came into the house of the Lord, and worshipped. Worshipped. He got the answer to his prayer. Wasn't the answer he wanted, but it was the answer that the Lord had for him, and he's going to worship for the answer the Lord had for him. This is like Job falling on his face and worshiping when Satan said he was going to curse God. And so the servants are rather befuddled. <laughs> what is this thing that you have done? They just, they want to know. They, they don't get it. While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. Now see, here is the key. This is why I call it a who knows prayer. While the child was still alive, David's answer in verse 22, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? There it is. That's why I call this a who knows prayer. Scripture records it. David's our illustration. I believe it's acceptable for believers. You and I can pray these prayers today when it's still in a who knows capacity. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Who knows? Who knows? And so this is a prayer, a mature prayer that has two things in view. You want to understand what a who knows prayer is. Because yes, God has a will. God has a declaration of that will in his righteousness and his holiness and his sovereignty. But at the same time, God also is gracious. And God will very frequently... Uh, incorporate within his will a range or a spectrum of possible outcomes dependent upon choices made, dependent upon grace and action, dependent upon repentance, dependent upon all kinds of other factors. Within his sovereignty, he establishes that range. So again, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. So David is not willing to allow himself to fall into an either-or mentality. He's professing the both-and mentality. 
Because righteousness and justice on the one hand says this child's going to die. And David knows that. He's not denying that. He's not denying that God is righteous or God is just. But what he is saying is that in addition to God being righteous and just and holy, he is also gracious. And since both are true, until such time as this child does die, then uh, he's going to continue to pray in the mode of grace. See, he's going to continue to pray in the mode of grace. And what possible reason might he have to wonder? Well, is God going to be merciful? Might God show grace in this circumstance? I know he said this, but might he show grace in spite of what he said? Well, the child didn't die on day one. Might he show some grace? Child didn't die on day two. Might he show grace? So each of those days that went by continued to leave it an open question in David's mind. Maybe this is a, a uh, potential avenue in which God himself is going to manifest his grace. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Remember, God will, in some cases, make statements that are not untruthful statements. They are truthful in themselves. But they are also testing statements. See, like when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Was God lying to Isaac? Or was God lying to Abraham? Should Abraham have just said, well, you know, it's the will of God. Told me to do it. I'm going to go do it. Yes and no. He still had faith. He still knew that God had something. God is gracious. So requesting mercy is a who knows faith prayer. We have our example right there. All right. Anyway, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he has died, why should I fast? The assignment's over. The test is over. I've got my answer. I've got my answer. And then he says, can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That right there is the clearest statement, by the way, of the age of accountability you'll ever find in the Bible. That child didn't believe in Jesus Christ. That child didn't get saved. The child was a week old. All right, a week old. And I firmly believe that under the, the age of accountability principle of, of grace. All right. So David did go to him. David died physically 40 years later. How many ever years later? And then uh, we'll uh, have a chance to meet both of them when we get to heaven. How about that? Uh, the book of Esther. Another illustration of this. Esther 4.14. And, uh, of course, the setup for this, Esther is now the queen. The king does not know her Jewish background. And uh, the wicked minister Haman has organized the death of all the Jews. And um, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, Jewish uncle, is uh, um, encouraging her. that She has a work assignment in this set of circumstances. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. You know, if you stay silent, if you hide your background, if uh, you know, he doesn't know you're a Jew, so just act like you don't know anything and you think you're going to escape like that. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. 
And I love that. Mordecai has a mature confidence that God's deliverance will take place. And if a, if a, if a tool falls short, that doesn't thwart God's plan, he selects another tool. All right. Salvation will still come from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? There's that language again. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Why do you think you're the queen? <laughs> Why do you think you won that audition beauty pageant deal? Why, Why did God put you there? Why are you where you are? Because if you back out now, why did God put you there in the first place? So you have a who knows type faith prayer. And then she's going to respond. This is where she has her tremendous statement of faith. If I perish, I perish. <laughs> you know, if I perish, I perish. But this is why I'm here. So there I go. It's a tremendous statement of faith. This uncle and this niece. It's a great story. All right. Joel 2.13. Goodness, when's the last time we turned to Joel? When's the last time we turned to Esther? When's the last time we turned to Esther and Joel in the same Bible class? I don't think so, right? I don't think that's happened yet. I'm skeptical. All right, Joel 2.13 Again, here is divine wrath, divine discipline, judgment upon Judah for their uh, evil and their rebellion. Um, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. The chapter starts, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord's coming. Surely it is near. Day of darkness and gloom and so on. I mean, man, bad things are happening. Locusts are on the way. The Lord utters his voice. Wrath, 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 wrath. Verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? If there is a, a more plainly worded, harsh judgment, you guys have had it message. I don't think there is one. This is it. This is, this is clear. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Yet even now. In other words, you're still alive. It's not too late. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, all the sackcloth and ashes and tearing your clothes and all the external display of, uh, it better be real. It better be real. Not some phony religion. Not some crocodile tears or begging or promising, oh, I'll never do it again. It's got to be a true heart, a broken heart, a rent heart of repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Of all the descriptions of Yahweh in the Old Testament, there is none given more frequently than that one right there we just read. More often than any other description of Yahweh. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Who knows? Whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? Who knows? In other words, repent now. Who knows? 
Maybe you won't change the divine discipline. But aren't you better off facing it in fellowship instead of out of fellowship? I mean, if you're going to die under wrath anyway, wouldn't you rather do it under the filling of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus Christ? And who knows? Maybe. Maybe the Lord's grace will respond. Who knows? So I like the who knows principle. And finally, Jonah. Jonah 3, verses 9 and 10. All right, get past Obadiah to Jonah. Get to Micah and Nahum, you've gone too far. And uh, Jonah is preaching, and the king responds, an Assyrian king of all things. And uh, he issues a proclamation. In verse 7, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way, from the violence which is in his hands. In other words, they're responding positively to Jonah's preaching. Gentiles responding to a Jewish prophet. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger. So that we will not perish. And this is actually what happened. Of course, that upset Jonah. All right, but they repented. And 150 years of grace was bestowed upon Nineveh. And then if you want the part two to the story, that's the book of Nahum, where they don't repent and where they are destroyed and removed from human history. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented. Of course, anthropomorphism, a figure of speech utilized to ascribe human terminology to God's actions. God, of course, is not a man. He does not change his mind. He does not repent. And we have other scriptures that address that. Concerning the calamity which he declared, he would bring upon them and he did not do it. See, in God's will, when he declares his will, when he declares his purpose, he also has that range that makes allowances in grace for repentance. Remember, he gets greater pleasure out of repentance than he does out of wrath. It glorifies him more. It pleases him more. It glorifies his son. It teaches the angels more. We study that out of the book of Ezekiel. He's not uh, reluctant to express wrath, but he's slow to wrath because he prefers repentance. And so ultimately, this is what underlies our own ministry because we're, we're in the church age. We're under imminency. We're waiting for the rapture of the church. And maybe we're impatient. And we think, well, the Lord is slow about his promise, right? As some count slowness. And Second Peter says, no, he's not slow, he's patient. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is an age, yes, the world is going to have more wrath than it's ever endured, ever. The, the great tribulation will be unique in human history. And God is delaying. God is delaying. Because he's merciful. All right, so we have requesting mercy as a who knows faith prayer. Secondly, this parable is consistent with Old Testament messages. This parable is consistent with Old Testament messages. In other words, Jesus is not the first Jewish prophet to give a message like this in a parable like this. It's very consistent. It has a Israel application, not a church application. It bugs me when non-dispensational, maladjusted theologians try to take Israel passages and put church application on it. 
But in Psalm 80, verses 8 through 19, and Isaiah 5, we have similar uh, contexts. Um, grab these quickly. We are going to get through today. How about that? Maybe I'll just keep preaching all day. What do you think? I'll just keep going and going. I'll be like the Energizer buddy and just keep going and going. And That way I don't have to go deal with the unpleasant things I think I have in store for this afternoon. Psalm chapter 80. It says in verse 8, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it. And it took deep root and filled the land. See, he's speaking here in a metaphor. But what's he talking about? Israel. Israel came out of Egypt. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its, with its boughs. It was uh, sending out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. So, man, this thing grew. You know, when a tree grows tall enough to overshadow the mountains, that's, uh, that's something. And then the question, why have you broken down its hedges? So that all who pass that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest eats, eats it away. Whatever moves on the field feeds on it. Alright, so God in His own discipline is uh, allowing that tree, instead of being well tended and hedged about, He dropped the hedge and He's letting the wild beasts uh, devour it. It goes on down. Uh, the psalmist here is saying, O God of hosts, turn again now we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted. So, you'll notice the psalmist sees that God has given this tree over, and yet he now steps into a role of an intercessor, asking God to to relent or repent or change his mind or turn again, is the phrase here, and and once again have a, a heart of love towards this tree. Let, uh, I love verse 17, let your, right, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. So many messianic allusions here to this. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Anyway, there's a long context there. I skipped some of those verses, but I'm hitting up towards the top of the hour. Isaiah 5, 1-7. through 7. I want to give you point C to wrap this up and bring you to the church age application. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower on the middle of it. He also hewed out a wine vat in it, and then he expected it to produce good groups. I'm sorry, good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done it? Say, it wasn't God's fault. He did everything for that vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now tell me, or let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds, no rain on it. 
in any event, passage of wrath. So the Lord's parable here is consistent. It's consistent. The message ought to be clear. The last issue I want to give you, though, brings us into the New Testament. This metaphor is also consistent with church application. So understand, Psalm 80 is not us. Isaiah 5 is not us. Luke 13 is not us. All of those messages relate to Israel in their stewardship, their function in the land, their um, expectations in their stewardship. But this now is us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is us. And on this basis now, we can make our own application because we too are farmers. We too are gardeners. We can uh, glean principles out of Luke 13, even though it's not written to us. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, so we can profit from that message, but only so far as we understand our relationship to it. So 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9 Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. There's your agricultural metaphor. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And then it shifts into God's building and leads into the next illustration of the building materials. But... We can just stop reading with the word field in verse 9 to understand that. So, we are God's field. As we are, or as we are workers, God's fellow workers, and as we see non-fruit producing trees in God's field, and as we see the hand of discipline upon non-fruit producing trees, are we going to become uh, cheerleaders for the axe ready to administer discipline? Or are we going to be intercessors that beg and plead in a who-knows prayer capacity and say, Lord, be merciful. Give it one more year. We'll tend it better. We'll dig it deeper. We'll spread manure. We'll, we'll um, oh, everything that's there in Luke 13. Are we going to be the intercessors that are going to pour our own effort into a brother or a sister that needs that cultivation? Because we're God's field. We're also God's fellow worker. Do we have the heart of the, of the man in the parable that begged, one more year, one more year, I'll tend it, I'll dig it deeper, I'll spread the manure. Are we willing to do the work on behalf of the tree that's about to come under God's wrath? I hope we are. I think 1 Corinthians 3 demands that. All right, Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for the faithfulness that you place things on our mind for application, Father. And um, thank you for the church family that you've blessed us with and uh, for those that come alongside when we need it and for those that we can come alongside when they need it and all the ways that uh, we can come as intercessors with the who knows prayer mentality, calling upon you and your grace and your mercy. I pray that you would develop within each one of us a compassion to pray and not let go. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.